Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. My name's Ian Smith. I'm the company's editor of the IC. I'm filling in for our editor, John Human today, who has been stuck at home thanks to the biblical weather that we saw last night. Another casualty of that weather was Dominic Toms, who's currently in our control booth. How are you doing, Dominic? I am okay. Have you dried out? Just about. Dom had the water coming through the light fitting in his bedroom last night, so it's uh, very laudable that you've even made it into work Thanks today. Very much. Thank you very much. Um, also in the studio, we have Bradley Gerard, our news editor. How are you doing, Bradley? Uh, not too bad. I'm actually fighting off really bad cold, even though it's summer. So apart from that, I'm fine though. We're dropping like flies here. And uh, we also have our specialist writer, Megan Boxall. How are you doing, Megan? I'm fine, yeah. All this morbid talk. I'm, I'm great. So. You, you had a bit of an arduous trip into work. I did, well, yes, I did. Three but... trains or something. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was a long old journey. Well, we're here. And while everyone is talking about the referendum, I suppose we can't get away from that topic. But we are recording this podcast on the on the day of voting and it'll be published on that day too. Um, so we obviously won't be talking too much about that as a topic. But Bradley, kind of as we head into it, we've seen the pound spike today, haven't we? Which is uh, different from what we were kind of reporting. And we put this magazine together on Wednesday um, and we'd report about kind of the gold buying that had been going on. There was also kind of queues in the City of London uh, on uh, Wednesday as people were queuing up to change their pounds into dollars. But, you know, if they'd done that yesterday, they might have lost out on a bit of upside today. Yeah, it's certainly been um, a tale of two halves, I suppose, the past sort of 10 days or so, because as um, the leave camp kind of uh, looked like it was um, gaining ground in the polls and at times even marginally ahead, you know, obviously that, that affected asset prices. And as you say, we've got a piece in seven days showing how much uh, the demand for gold spiked. Um, and the UK's Royal Mint, they have an online trading platform. They reported a 32% increase in transactions compared with last month. And gold, uh, actually we spoke about this in the podcast last week, it was a, a key point of um, Alex's feature. Um, gold is seen as a safe haven a- asset, so there's obviously a bit of belief that oh, perhaps the Leave Camp could uh, you know, triumph come results day. But um, actually, in the past few days, what we've really seen is the pound and equities rally strongly, which would suggest that um, you know that that the, the Leave Camp may not be uh, in the powerful position they they were once in. If you believe in the predictive uh, quality of markets, of course, yeah. that's just what the polls are saying. So that's uh, yeah. Yeah, well, exactly right. Um, okay, well, well, let's step away from that subject, as there's not too much um, informed comment we can say about it. Um, but let's uh, look at what else we have in uh, seven days this week. Um, one of my favourite um, shareholder and company battles of the year, uh, Stock Spirits, um, has had you know another round, although not quite as um, dramatic as some of the previous ones. But um, what's going on there this week, Bradley? Yeah, I think people will be breathing a bit of a sigh of relief finally after um, a few months battling uh, Western Gates Private Investments, which is, um, basically represents a chap called Luis Amaral, who is effectively the largest shareholder in Stock Spirits, which is um, the London-listed uh, but Eastern European-focused um, distiller. And Western Gate kind of got its way, really. It managed to get two people elected to the board. Um, the former chief executive, now former chief executive, Chris Heath, uh, stepped down once the kind of the battle between this investor and the company got going. Um, but this week, actually, there's been some good news, which is a 10p per share special dividend. And um, this should please everybody, really, because actually the reason Stock Spirits is paying this out is because it's said that it will not engage in any M&A activity this year. Um, it had said that prior to Western Gate making itself known, but Western Gate had also agitated on the fact that 
stock spirits should actually focus on what it's doing rather than try and buy something else so it should actually please um all all camps so to speak and um i mean the shares haven't moved massively on it they've moved a little bit upwards we're still pretty bearish on it because the the problems with this polish business are they're gonna be difficult to overcome so we're still a bit bearish on it but there are potentially early signs that you know the uh, the people are thinking. The people there are like looking and thinking in the right in the right way. I mean, I suppose that's unlikely to be over in terms of a battle, given um, that Western Gate want um, the head office to be moved out of the UK. Right? They they they're resentful of the fact that you kind of have this UK headquartered company which has most of its operations in in Poland. So they there's still governance changes they want, but obviously there's a limit to what other shareholders will go along with in terms of their demands. Yeah, exactly. And then, I mean, so I think Stock Spirits is actually the, the cost of having a UK-based office is not that significant, and there are people on the ground in Poland, kind of doing the day job there is a recently uh, a fairly recently installed like new refresh management team in poland so they they would argue that, that that's a bit of a, a moot point but you're right western gates has uh, raised that as what it sees as an issue before okay and uh elsewhere um remaining in, in retail and uh, debenhams um the kind of swan song of michael sharp um how did that go down um, yeah, they had a bit of a tough time actually. I think at one point um, yesterday, when the uh, the update was, they were kind of leading the FTSE downwards, which is obviously a shame for Michael Sharp, as you say, it's his um, last trading update, but last kind of market statement before he leaves. I think his last day is actually tomorrow, the twenty fourth of June. He has had a pretty good tenure actually at Debenhams, and he's changed the way the business works quite a lot. And um, this recent, most recent Christmas period was one of their strongest ever. So there's no sort of denying that he's been a force for good for the company. It's just a shame that on his way out, things have turned a bit sour. But is this the, is this the kind of high street, the softness on the high street that we've seen with some of the other retailers coming through and hurting them? I think it is. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's always an argument of you know you could always argue that the consumers constantly fickle and will constantly go to where the offering is deemed to be the best or where the prices are the best or whatever. So, I mean, in a way, you know, I mean, the the descriptions of the trading environment were sort of in the Debenham statement were weaker, uncertain, volatile. So quite kind of like dramatic words. I mean, I don't know if that's always been the case, but I would say that you know there are certain companies who are better at maybe pivoting towards what consumers want and therefore surviving better in any environment. But Debenhams is doing something about it. At least it's kind of bringing in um, different types of companies as uh, concession stands, things like Claire's Accessories, which maybe will broaden the age appeal of Debenhams out to a younger generation. And um, it's also putting a lot more um, food sort of uh, eateries um, into its stores as well. And it hopes to have... Um, like a, a new food outlet in about 40% of its stores by Christmas. So it's really pushing that bit as well, which I suppose brings back to that whole overarching retail theme of the kind of the experience. Like incomes might be quite tight, but people are willing to pay for something they see as an experience. So going to Debenhams might not just be going and buying some clothes, but it could well be soon some furniture, um, you know, stop off with the Claire's accessories thing and have lunch there as well. So, would you have lunch there at Debenhams? Well, who knows? Maybe it depends what they're offering. Megan, would you eat lunch at well, Debenhams? I was just thinking it's starting to sound a bit like John Lewis, and uh, I've had lunch at John Lewis quite a few times. It's relatively really? nice, at John Lewis. There you go. But unless you're going to have penguins in your Christmas advert, then 
It's just not going to be John Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> On such things to the fates of retail turn. Okay, well, somewhere else there's, there's another story in news, um, which was one of the kind of major stock stories of the week, is Circassia, which was a fall, but much greater than the fall of Debenhams. Um, Megan, what has gone wrong at Circassia? Yeah, poor old Circassia. They uh, they fell 64% on uh, Tuesday, I think it was, when uh, they, ha- they announced that their big trial that they've been waiting on for quite some time was uh, this for this uh, cat allergy treatment um, had unfortunately failed its final clinical trials. Um, this is a bit of a weird one, isn't it, in terms of the placebo was incredibly yeah, and more than it's expected. Very effective. unusual. Um, it's something that, well, when I spoke to the chief executive Steve Harris, he said, um, and he may have been exaggerating a bit, but he he said that this placebo effect had never ever been seen in science before, which. Is, it, it sounds like something has gone a little bit wrong with the with the actual test, with the trial, um, rather than the drug and the treatment, which had a very good effect. The people, the patients who took it, who all had severe cat allergies, their symptoms actually decreased 60% during the trial. Unfortunately, so did those who took the placebo, which means that the, the treatment has, has been declared that it, it doesn't it doesn't work any better than the placebo, even though it did work. So yeah, all very Does that not suggest that in, in some ways, it's obviously a layman's question, but the obvious question that it is in some ways psychological, a cat allergy? Uh, or? Potentially, yeah. That, um, it could be, but probably quite unlikely because uh, I can't imagine anyone does want uh, want to have a cat allergy. What an interesting statement I saw from a broker, an, an analyst note, uh, uh, someone who'd written this from Numis, was that, and it could explain why this placebo effect was seen, was um, the patients who signed up to the trial may have exaggerated when they signed up um, on how severe their symptoms were, just because it, it was a trial for people with severe cat allergies. So in exaggerating when they got onto the trial, they were able to take this revolutionary, revolutionary treatment. So by the time it got to the end of the trial, and because it's all self-reporting, um, by the time they got to the end of the trial, the symptoms were not quite so severe because they may have exaggerated at the start. It was just speculation, but it could explain why these uh, the, the trials went so badly. But it does sort of call into question um, all of the Scassia's other trials in the allergy. Also, yeah, how are they, like, if I, could I just rock up and say, yeah, honestly, I'm allergic to cats, really allergic. Yeah. Where's that £1,000 or whatever it is? I, I guess these are trials are probably paid if you're a not sure person, i'm not no? sure if it's paid i think it's often more the fact that they just want the treatment i mean okay. you hear about it a lot with um other other illnesses people are just desperate to get into trials because they want this treatment and i suppose if you want to have if you've got cats you've got children who want cats then if you want <laughs> an allergy then well as, as someone who has three cats uh, people are often saying uh, they don't want to come and see me because of their cat allergies so perhaps what we're learning is that people uh, talk up their cat allergy <laughs> where in fact they don't have a very strong cat allergy maybe, maybe it's just no they don't want to come and see you I don't think anyone wants to come to my house so we're getting to the bottom of this um, so uh, it, it, is all hope lost for this drug because well, obviously the shares came up afterwards big in, uh, big investors such mm-hmm. as Neil Woodford came out and said we still believe mm-hmm. um, a cynic might say you have to because you've yeah. lost so much money here and you don't want to go back to your investors. Um, but, you know, he's keeping faith. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you, do you think there's some hope for this drug or is there some hope for the remaining business? Yeah, I, I think there, there probably is. Sacassia has been very sensible in the last few years. Um, it's, it's something that's sort of set them apart from a lot of the older biotechnology companies which just relied on one product and all, all hopes were pinned on that. But they, they've expanded. They, they raised a lot of money when they listed. Uh, they were, it was the biggest... Uh, biggest fundraising ever for a biotechnology company in the UK and they've used a bit of that money to acquire other businesses so they have got other drugs both in the pipeline and actually being sold they launched their first 
well, they made their first revenues at the recent end of year results from a string of asthma diagnostic products. Um, so it means that they have still got something going for them. It's not a completely lost cause. It's obviously not what they wanted because this this would have really seen uh, seen sales ramp up and they're, they're not a profitable company. They're now not going to be a profitable company for a very long time because they haven't got this groundbreaking allergy treatment but can it be can the because obviously the conduct of the trial has mm. been key to this can they fix the process um not you know fix is probably the wrong verb there but you know can they get this drug kind of back on or on the rails mixed reviews in that um the chief executive said that all hope wasn't lost when i spoke to their house broker he thinks it's the end of the road for cat's buyer as the treatment um, it cost them $60 million to conduct this trial, so they're going to have to have a lot of evidence to redo it. Otherwise, investors are just going to say, nope, you've done it once, I'm not letting you do it again. Um, they have got other allergy treatments. Um, grass is one of them, um, which they've had to stop funding that trial at the moment because they're worried about how it was, how it's been conducted. But if if there's other, if, if they do, do find out that the way that they conduct these trials can be fixed then yeah there could be could be a potential upside in the allergy business but for the moment it's just on the rocks tough tough times for them uh, yeah. and their shareholders and tough times for anyone that has a cat allergy that they're <laughs> struggling to shift um, I think one of the best cures for cat allergy is having a cat. Um, I, you know the people that have had cat allergies and then have had a cat for a long time. But, I mean, maybe that's an exp- expensive, uh, uh, just the same. Okay, well, let's move on. Uh, just elsewhere in uh, news, Bradley, quickly, we've had a um, another turnaround plan from Hornby. So what's the latest there? Yeah, I mean, Hornby, makers of the um, uh, sort of toy trains are the same name. And they also own actually Scalectrics, which I used to enjoy playing as a kid, and uh, Corgi cars. Um it tells what generation you are, doesn't it? It does, Depending doesn't on what it? Court, Hornby stuff. <laughs> and if you're in the current generation, none. No, no exactly. People, people, young people listening to this might not know what scale extra is. But anyway, um, yeah, Steve Cook, the chief executive, he only joined the group in February. He's kind of um, issued a new turnaround plan for the company. Uh, we have had the turnaround plans before, but um, this one seems um, relatively well thought through, I suppose. It's quite focused and... Um, but it is going to rely heavily, almost entirely really, on the company raising £8 million, which it wants to do via placing. Um, should it raise that £8 million, then it will have access to an additional £10 million from its uh, bank, Barclays. So if it gets that, then you can see this plan you know, actually coming to fruition. And the plan includes sort of like focusing a bit more on their key brands, um, streamlining the European operations. Um, so yeah, th- they need the money, um, and I guess without it, I mean, goodness knows what's only going to happen. But they must seem fairly confident they're going to get it. Um, but yeah, uh, time will tell. I mean, the, the share price fell an awful lot back in the last year on a profit warning. So um, yeah, so when I last looked, it was about thirty-one p, and it, it was kind of hovering around the hundred p level in two thousand and fifteen. Yeah, so exactly. So it fell an awful rough. long way. I mean, if it, anyone who is sort of keeping the faith, um, well, yeah, they'll be hoping this plan can come off. But it's quite a lot of money to raise for a company that actually is now, I think, about 17 million in market cap. So, you know, it's a sizable percentage of its size. Um, yeah. It we'll might see. be last chance, Celine. Yeah. Who knows? 
Now we're going to skip the feature this week as, as James is actually on study leave for some important exams. Good luck, James. But if we turn straight to the results section, we've got um, a few interesting results. Not quite as busy. It gets busier towards the end of July. Uh, but there's a few interesting companies talking about kind of turnaround plans. Bradley, a company that you reported on, Justic Wine, um, is starting to see some of the fruits of the labours of the uh, management in terms of trying to turn around the business. Uh, why are they happier and why were their shareholders happier this week? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they've um, they've been working quite a lot on making Majestic Wine um, kind of feel a bit more friendly, I suppose, as a, as a, as a retail experience. I mean, uh, Majestic Wine is very well known for like it's kind of six bottle minimum, that type of thing. Uh, which it's kind of specialist end of the wine market. Yeah, exactly, which potentially puts people off. They they obviously must agree with that sentiment because they've removed that now. So you can pop into Majestic and just buy one bottle of Plonk if you want. Um, and also they were saying they've kind of made the range of wines a bit more accessible, which I guess just means that they're rather than bombarding customers with too many types of wine and being almost too sort of grandiose in their knowledge of wine, they're just trying to scale it down a bit and make it a bit more palatable and easier for customers coming in there to understand what's going on and that seems to be working because you had majestic sort of core estate or the, the majestic estate let's call it that um registered its first like like sales growth in four years which is very positive and naked wines which majestic bought last year um that broke through the 100 million sales barrier for the first time too so there are some really sort of, sort of quite quantifiable sort of benchmarks being met here and Rowan Gormley, who's the chief executive, he actually was the chief executive of Naked Wines, but is now chief executive of the whole thing. It, it seems pretty upbeat. And um, they're actually looking at reinstating the dividend next year. So that will be um, you know, a great relief to investors who stuck with that because um, it was it was cut, um, or heavily reduced in 2015 anyway, um, to try and protect the business a bit. So yeah, people will definitely be looking forward to that coming back. Yeah, what I liked about this um, when I was kind of editing your piece here was that it's very targeted to the, the strategy. So they are, Mr. Gormley's doing different things in different divisions. That The work they're doing in the corporate division just makes perfect sense, feeding into this thing that you've been reporting on, which is this kind of move to premium drinks um, among pubs. You know, so yeah. they, that, that worked really well. They're also then kind of thinking about how to take some of the learnings from uh, Naked Wines and take them to Majestic Wines in the way that you've described. So I thought, yeah, the way it was very specifically done was very good. Yeah, exactly. I think um, yeah, Mr. Gormley's obviously quite a, a shrewd operator and um, as you say, the commercial division is probably quite key in terms of its size. It's um, not quite as big, I don't think, as Majestic and Naked's kind of retail presence put together. But it had 7.9% growth in sales. And actually, Mrs. Gormley thinks it's capable of doing double digit growth. And that is because, as you say, its customers, in large part, are those sort of pubs, pub chains, those sorts of things that are now all, it seems, targeting the premium consumer. So, in a sense, um, the commercial division's customer base is kind of growing and is only too keen to try and make sure it's ahead of the trends. Um, in wine or whatever it is because um you know the sort of the craft element of whether it be beer um spirits now maybe soon probably wine is quite key to getting consumers through the door and it's a classic example of a new chief executive um putting costs through the um income statement um, associated with the changes they're making the company kind of halting its dividend but then with a view to reinstating it it seems to be kind of a classic approach of trying to then return some momentum to the the investment case uh, by kind of having a bad set of numbers 
starting to turn things around and then hoping that the company can grow. Yeah, absolutely. So it seems to be a sensible way to have done it. And yeah, I think the um, the reactions kind of been positive. Moving to another result in the in the section that you've written, Megan, care tech. Now you've re- recently written a section focus about um, care homes and the funding pressures that they are under. Care tech hasn't been immune to those, but these set of results did have reasons for encouragement. Yeah, absolutely. Care tech definitely uh, is the stronger of the two care home operators in the. Uh, in the UK, UK listed sector. The other one is Cambian, who's just had a bit of a shock over the last few months. But Caretech, yeah, these were pretty, pretty solid numbers, um, considering there have been a lot of difficulties in the sector, mainly centred around uh, the national living wage. Um, care home operators are having to pay their staff more money now. But Caretech isn't worried about that. It thinks it's going to have plenty of extra cash coming in from the tax hike which a lot of local authorities have chosen to enforce with all the extra funds from that are going to going to care home funding um it's got a fair amount of debt on the balance sheet it does yeah but in that way it is very much structured like a property company it's just it's using a lot of that debt it's just it's continuing to acquire new properties turning them into um care homes for both adults and children um foster homes in there as well yeah, for that reason, it seems to be just chugging along nicely. Those acquisitions that it can, continues to make are proving pretty pretty solid. Um, more numbers, more more people in beds, more children in their schools, their special, specialist schools that they run as well. And it's all leading to higher revenue, higher profit. So, yeah, it's going well. The only concern um, that I had, and even though it, it, is, it is doing well, is that, yeah, the market is really, really struggling at the moment. Care homes are in real difficulty in the UK, and we've seen a lot of that in the news. Um, and, yeah, that was the, the focus of my, uh, my sector focus a couple of weeks ago because a lot of the bigger care home operators have, have really struggled. Yeah, and you make this point that if, yeah, if you view it just kind of as a property company, then there are com- property companies that we see as less subject to the whim of uh, governmental yeah. Um, policy. Yeah, exactly. Um yeah, we like we like Caretech. It pays a good dividend. Uh, it's, a, it's a strong dividend yield, and it's not all that expensive. But yeah, like like you say, there's a lot of property companies out there um, which offer similar yields, and they aren't so subject to to that potential worry of uh, of the national living wage and government funding. Yeah, ex- exactly right. Well, that's going to be a very important story to kind of keep tabs on. So we'll see how that mm. develops. Um, interestingly, we started talking about. Um, currency movement so it's in some ways appropriate to finish talking about record which is a specialist fund manager that um, provides hedging strategies for investors and also um, tries to pay play certain currency premium for return um, now record is a company a stock that we have been kind of positive on but it has struggled to kind of build its assets um, and, and we saw again further kind of outflows during the 2016 financial year and what, what do we think is kind of going on there yeah well that when you sort of initially looked at the numbers was potentially a bit of a worry we as you said we, we all know about all the currency volatility at the moment so for a company that like record that really benefits from times of currency volatility the fact that these numbers weren't particularly inspiring is uh, was potentially a bit concerning they had actually already announced before these results that there was a net outf- outflow of assets so that wasn't really surprising um but um, but they still did have a net outflows of assets. Have a, no, <laughs> yeah, and their assets, assets under management, or notional assets under management, because mm. they just calculate the amount of the value of the assets upon which they provide the hedging strategies, mm-hmm. had kind of fallen over the period. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I see. So the management's argument around this is that, as, as we were kind of discussing the other day, and as Simon Thompson has written about, you know, you know, online as well, is that you know actually because we've had this extraordinary monetary environment, we haven't seen this kind of risk premia performing in the way that they would hope in terms of trying to attract kind of third party money. Is that what they were kind of saying to you? Yeah, they were. They were sort of yeah, exactly. It was exactly that. They were saying that even though it looks like from the outside that the environment was actually quite good for, for their business, it, it actually they they had some they came across some real difficulties during the year, um, which did cause that that net outflow um of- which is somewhat surprising in some ways because you would still think that investors would be looking for currency hedging given the kind of volatility that we've seen. But perhaps, obviously, this year it was just the year to March 2016. So perhaps since there's been a bit more appetite for it. But it's quite interesting, Bradley, given the kind of change that we've seen that, you know, that you can't make this work. But then maybe it just must be down to the kind of portfolio decisions of the institutional investors that they're serving. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it'd be interesting maybe to see their next update and see whether the um, the volatility surrounding sort of the EU referendum has, which has certainly spiked really since March. I mean, I think in the first quarter of the year, nobody was really, they were thinking about the referendum, it was coming up, but it wasn't front and centre of mind, whereas um, the past sort of couple of months it definitely has been. So uh, yeah, the, the next update would be interesting, actually. And uh, yeah, and, and as we know, some of the kind of banks and trading staff at some of the major investment banks are kind of staying up all night and to kind of try and gauge the outcome and trade the outcome of the referendum. Well, on, on that note, and uh, leaving that kind of cliffhanger um, <laughs> as it is inevitably going to be, I just like to kind of draw attention to a few of the other things in the in the magazine this week. Uh, the cover feature um, by James Norrington is about the world's best value markets and the countries investors should be buying right now. He's done some interesting technical analysis around that. We also have the latest edition of our 50 objects looking at chocolate M&Ms of all things or the famous rapper one of uh, Megan's favourites and then we also have oh, well I've written a column that you should definitely read on Purple Bricks the new hybrid estate agency and they also have some results this week uh, it's the stock we've been a fan of but I have tried to ask some testing questions or I hope they are testing about uh, the company and its service uh, so do have a read of that and uh, before we go just to say please do sign up for the company's email twice a week and you get our regular digital output on all the company's news that we discuss on this podcast well thanks very much it's £4.70 and all good uh, news agents and we'll see you on the other side of the referendum 